Hi there, everybody. Happy Monday. Hi, guys. Monday, back to Mark's Gospel. Yes. So, you know, we're getting very close to finishing this. We are. Because there's only a very short piece of chapter 16 because most think that many, I guess I should say many, think scholars think that the original ending of Mark was lost because the two endings that are in the Bible in italics usually, are not real. They're not genuine. We know that. So, anyway. but So, we got to decide what to do next. So, if anybody has any ideas, send them in. I'm thinking, I want to go to the Old Testament. I looked at the various things I've done on podcasts on Mondays and Tuesdays mm-hmm. and all that. And I'm thinking about the Book of Esther. That would well, that be a big change. Good. Yeah, yeah. Be a big change. That'd be, right? That would be great. Yeah, it's a great story. It is, it is an interesting book. You know, it's the only book in the Bible that does not have the word God in it. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yes. But, you know, sorry, really, God suffuses the thing. Of course, the yes. So, there we go. But if you've liked um, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you'll love Esther. Yeah. Because it's, it's the good, same kind of great good, storytelling. Good, good storytelling. Good writing. Okay, well, anyway, if you have anything, any other ideas that you want to send me, that would be great. Yes, because um, that book absolutely. isn't that that long either. Nope, so, it's so not. It we'll take. need a, another one after that. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Always, you know, I, think I, ha- I only got 66 to choose from. And some mm-hmm. of them don't lend themselves very well to right. this sort of right. class. But in any like event. numbers. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. I can read all those names. I can <laughs> fake it. You, I but can you fake might it. be alone. That's the only yeah, problem. Yeah, that's true. You okay. Might be alone. All right. So, so um, anyway, okay. So, I guess we're ready. What to do you go. have today? Not much. Not much. Okay. Um, we're picking up my sister in a couple hours. She's going to be with us for a week. Do some of her she diabetes is. doctor stuff and isn't she? She is. She is. Yes, she is. So, okay. Anyway. Alrighty. Hey, All guess right. what? What? I'm saying this on camera. I am so cruel. You spilled something there at lunch. Oh, <laughs> did I? This is this is part of my Halloween costume. Oh, it is. Yeah. What was it called? I'm going as a U.S. senator. You know which one? Oh, I do. I do. He doesn't. What have sweat- is that? He what did I drop have, on myself? He doesn't have sweatpants. That might have been on, breakfast. You know, it felt breakfast. kind of like a uh, a little wheat flake or something. I think that's what. It oh have been. man. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't see it earlier. Anyway, oh well. You better get. There we go. It's all right. Here. It's all right. It's okay. We can all cope. Everybody can cope. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are again grateful to be to be gathered around here virtually with our Bibles ready to study your word, to take this time out of our week to talk about Mark's gospel and the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, this these are these are hard portions of Mark's gospel because they hurt our hearts and souls, but um, it's important we we confront them and You've given them these to us for a reason, for a reason, um, and help us to to gain that that reason and and deeper insights as well. All this we pray in Jesus's name. Amen. 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 Just okay. happened to notice, uh, Jan says Esther is one of her favorite books. Good. 
and see Susan, you know, said something upbeat too. And the thing is, there is only 66 books. Of course, some are so much longer than others, and some are just not really suitable for a Bible study. But by the time we come around to it, even if it's a few years later, yes. we all need a refresher. Yes. We really, really do. I yeah. know you tell me even every time you go through it and prepare again for a study, um, you know, there's just so many little things that you forget from year to year. Yes, and you change. You change. The scripture stays the same, but That's we change. True. We change. All the time. And, and so it's... sometimes there are great books that come out, like by N.T. Wright or somebody like that, who kind That's of helpful. shows you a new right, way to look new, at things. Right. All righty. So, okay, very good. Well... We are in the 15th chapter, and I'm going to start at the 6th, uh, which verse? The 21st verse. Because Jesus is now carrying the cross piece for his crucifixion. And we talked about this last week, but let's just refresh our memories just a bit. Um, <laughs> and I'm so sorry. Can you repeat that one sure. more time? Sure, 1521. So, if you look at this map, and you look on the western side, right, the western side of the city, you'll see Herod's palace, and Jesus is going to make the trip to Golgotha, which is just outside the city walls at a crossroads, that is out there where more than likely the Romans have permanent uprights. So the condemned only have to carry the cross pieces. And this is the, uh, I brought one from the model. Um, you can see the little gate into the city. You can see the road leading into it. And just to the left, where the arrow's pointing, is you know, those two little markers there, I think, are supposed to be permanent uprights um, of some kind, I suppose. But that area, which you may not be able to make out too well, is sort of supposed to represent a quarry with stone in it and water in it and greenery in it. And, um, you know, like I said last week, the, the, the limestone used in the foundation of the Temple Mount by Herod the Great... Um, and those builders who followed him, was all taken from the immediate area around the Temple Mount because there was no good way to transport it. It's amazing. Some of these stones are so... One, there's one down there in the foundation of the Temple Mount that weighs 550 tons. I have no idea how they were able to move that any distance at all, but they did, and... Um, so, and the, these quarries would leave areas. Limestone, you know, is very porous. It burns. It melts even. Um, and uh, so, where because it's so porous around the quarries, there's lots of caves and things for that could be turned into tombs. And that, of course, factors into this story. So, Jesus has been beaten, mocked, scourged. That's the flogging. Um, a lot of blood loss, a lot of shock. These are all physical things. Um, can't be, can't be helped. It isn't like Jesus is spared any of that. He, he feels the pain and the shock just as you or I would. Um, and verse 21, 
a certain man from Cyrene, whose name is Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Cyrene is an area in Libya. This man is probably Jewish, given his name, given that he's there at Passover, uh, but we don't really know anything about him. We don't know anything about Alexander and Rufus. Um, there is a Rufus that shows up in the Book of Romans at the end, but, you know, it's impossible to ascertain whether it's the same person. But, so this, this man from Cyrene, uh, whose name is Simon, the father of these two young men, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they, the Roman soldiers, the execution squad, is what that is, forced him to carry the cross. This, um, the, this cross piece that is, um, that Jesus is carrying to the place of crucifixion. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. I talked last week with the fact we're not really sure why. Um, it seems to me the most straightforward reason is because it's where the Romans accomplished crucifixions. You know, I don't know if in the limestone there there was something that kind of looked like a skull. That wouldn't be hard to imagine how poor, given how porous limestone is. But in any event, again, to go to to go to this photo of the model, that's that's where Golgotha is, right there. Um, that's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. If you visit Jerusalem today, it is right over that spot. It is the spot where. Um, after the Romans came in in the 130s AD and completely eliminated Jews from this land, they um, erected a temple to one of the pagan gods over that spot. And when Helena, Constantine's mother, um, a couple hundred years later, made a big famous trip to the Holy Land to go visit all the places where Jesus had been, was born, and was crucified because she uh, became a Christian as um, led there by her son. She came here and they asked, she wanted to know where Jesus was crucified. And they showed her and um, said, they said, right there, right right underneath this, this pagan temple that we erected, you know, a hundred years after Jesus. And so she had it torn down and she built the first iteration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on that spot. And consequently, most, most scholars, I, nearly all, like 98%, see this as the place of the crucifixion, not up at the garden tomb. Feels like it, but not the place. Church of the Holy Sepulchre does, doesn't feel like it, but it is the place. So there we go. Verse 23, then they, these would be the Roman soldiers still, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. You know, myrrh is, is like an incense. Um, maybe if this would have some deadening qualities, but that's, it made the wine really almost undrinkable. Maybe virtually undrinkable. And since it's offered to him by the Romans, this is probably more mocking. Well, you want, you want some wine? Well, it will give you wine and we'll spoil it with this myrrh. 
you know, some people will have seen it, since myrrh is something that will be used at burials and all that kind of stuff. Um, some deep theological meaning, maybe, I don't know, um, but the soldiers certainly wouldn't see any of that. They're just continuing to mock Jesus, and the mocking is going to reach a fever pitch later in the day. So Jesus did, didn't take it, um, and they crucified him, verse 24. Four simple words, they crucified him. This horrible, humiliating death I described last week, the way that they would tie the wrists and maybe nail nail the palms and and tie the ankles, nail the ankles. We have, we did find, um, not we, but archaeologists found a skeleton of a man from this time who had been crucified, and sure enough, he had a big, long nail hammered straight through his, his ankles. So it's like the two ankles were put on one side of the upright, wooden upright, and the nail was driven through the two of them. I can't even imagine enduring that. The pain, the suffering, the shock, and the humiliation. See, that's what all the mocking is about. It's about humiliation in a culture that so values honor and, and the avoidance of shame. That's what they want, the avoidance of shame. And here, Jesus is being mocked, 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 mocked. So they crucified him. Got him up on that cross piece, um, up on the upright. Maybe something like this. This is a painting I've used before um, because they're not too far off the ground. They wouldn't be way up in the air. They were maybe even lower than this. Um, but it's a reasonable way. The crowd's milling around. This is quite the event. You can see the city walls in the background. So it's not on some far distant hills, hilltop like you'll see sometime in the movies. No, it's all right there in the hustle and bustle of the city because this is a public warning. This is not simply an execution. It's a public warning. And the stronger the warning and the more public it is, the better. Then, verse 24, dividing up his clothes... That would be every inch of his clothing. Jesus, they would have stripped him of everything. And in the after he's up there, and the reason is so that he would be yet further humiliated. As well as the two men on his, the men on his right and on his left. Um... When Paul uses the word humiliation in Philippians 2, it's a powerful word that God would agree. God would take on this sort of humiliation um, for our sake. It boggles the mind. And they cast lots to see what each would get. Because, you know, clothing is clothing and it's all hard to come by in this world. Um, there is a movie, and there was a book made into a movie. The movie stars Richard Burton and somebody else. Um, and um, called The Robe. And it's about 
I think he's this, Robert Burton is the centurion, and he leaves with the robe, and his life is changed. Utterly by having this, the robe of Jesus. So I remember reading the book when I was a teenager, and I saw the movie, and of course, like always, the movie doesn't live up to the book, but that's okay. That's always the way. So I saw that Diana Reeves yes. put something on her about myrrh, a gift of one of the wise men. Yes, it is. It was it it was incense. It wasn't, um, and that's why you could. Some will want to see some theological meaning in this moment when the soldiers are putting myrrh in the wine. I, I think it's just, it's just mocking. It's just ruining it. It's just ruining. That's. That, nothing more. But, okay, so, let's just follow that for a second. So, that's the irony. See, at every piece in Mark's Gospel, there is there is what the people there see, and it's what we know. So, when Jesus is mocked for being king of the Jews, what do we know? He is. When a purple robe is put on him and he's mocked, what do we know? He should have a purple robe on. When he's given a crown of thorns, what do we know? He does wear a crown. He's the king of kings. Here, if the myrrh is meant to, to connect up to the wise men in Mark's mind, it's another ironic moment. Right? It, 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 is, it, it is working on two levels. And the soldiers and the people there that day don't realize that what they are doing is actually proclaiming truth. And we'll see that some more here. Okay. You know, that what made me just think of something too. Like if one of the wise men actually did bring myrrh, uh -huh. was that was that a little fore foresight into the future or about a, something about Jesus' death? Well that would be that would be something. I don't know. I, I don't I think they were just valuable gifts of you know, frankincense and myrrh, and um, they were of some aromatic value. I think, actually, if the biggest connection is probably to how he is anointed for burial with those things, because mm -hmm. they would typically, if a body is laid out in the tomb to be buried, then it is the, those things would be arrayed around the body, okay? Now, Mark is very particular about his times. It's, he's on a three-hour clock. In fact, Mark likes threes, right? Um, Peter denies Jesus three times. They fall asleep three times. Um, the clock is, is six in the morning, nine in the morning, noon, three in the afternoon, three hours, three hours, three hours, three hours. In, in Mark. And now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So what do we have there? More irony. He is the king of the Jews. They, they scribble it on a piece of wood and tack it above his head um, so that everybody knows what he's charged with. Um, but it's very mocking in their minds, very mocking. Um, but the truth is, he is the king 
of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. Verse 27. Well, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. If you grew up using the King James, you grew up with these two men being thieves. But the word there really doesn't, in the word in the Greek doesn't convey thieves. It conveys rebels or brigands or, because crucifixion was not used for just everyday executions of some kind. They were used, crucifixions were used for those who were standing up to the power of Rome, those who were leading rebellion, those who were putting themselves forward as some sort of rebel king. You know, and so if you sort of get that in your head, it makes it easier, I think, to understand what is happening and the nat nature of, of the mocking here. Okay? Gotta clean my glasses for a second, Patty. You'll see, you'll see in about 15 seconds. Okay. It's like this thing's on tape delay or something, isn't it? <laughs> it is, about 15 or 20 seconds. <laughs> Those who passed by hurled incense, insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Ah, let this Messiah, right, this King of Israel, right, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus is not meeting their expectations of who the Messiah is. All that's happening is, moment by moment, hour by hour, he is increasingly shown to be a false Messiah. God's Messiah, on the other hand, would arrive in power and might and wonder and glory and kick out the Romans and clean up the temple. This is, Jesus is being executed. He's being crucified. All that means, all that could mean for these people is that he is not God's Messiah. He is not who he claimed to be. He might have said he was. Remember what he said to Caiaphas when Caiaphas asked, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. You know, in their minds, well, words are easy. But now they're seeing it demonstrated that he's not. Caiaphas is right. He's not the Messiah. Because Messiahs don't end up on Roman crosses. This is where, you know, theologically, Jesus is turning the world upside down. This is what, what Jesus is demonstrating, is that this is what God's power is. Do you think God would have the power to smite anyone he wants to smite 
burn down anything he wants to burn down? Bible's clear. Look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course God has that power. But God chooses this path. God chooses this path. It is through suffering that humanity will be redeemed and reconciled with God. And there's just no true expectation of it. There, if you go through the Old Testament scriptures, you'll find these passages such as Isaiah 51 about the righteous one who suffers. But that was usually taken to be Israel because they had suffered so much, you know, really for the last 500 years. But the Messiah isn't, doesn't fit into that mold. The Messiah was this warrior king, you know, gleaming hair, big sword, kind of like Thor, <laughs> right? Coming to to do God's to do God's work. So it is. Um, it is very, very telling. Let's take a moment and look at Amos eight, nine and ten. I, I did jot down a few cross references. Mark is Mark is very much relying on Old Testament passages. This whole sequence, the way he writes it, is so reliant on Psalm twenty two, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's go to Amos. Amos is one of the so called lesser prophets or minor prophets, just because um, it's a shorter book. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. I say as I'm trying to read here in darkness. Would you like me to turn on more light for you? No. So, Amos, in Amos, you see part of what is soon going to be happening. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. What the people think is happening is not what is happening. That's the key. What they see is not the truth. I mean, it is happening, it is real, Jesus is suffering and he is going to die, but they don't see the truth. They'd have no, nothing in their worldview, is to use a word I use, I've been using in my Sunday class lately, to prepare them for that. So sure, he's on the cross now, um, they put the sign above his head, King of the Jews. He's mocked and mocked and mocked by passers-by, by the chief priests and teachers of the law. Even the men on the cross each side of him mock him. Now, you might ask me, as I'm sure is running through your mind, well, what about this guy who says, you know, well, Jesus, you know, what has this man ever done? Jesus be, Jesus be with me in paradise. Well, 
either that is not a conflict with what happens here because there is a lot of time yet ahead and it's possible that that man sort of comes around, right? I mean, that's how I would reconcile this. It's also possible that, that um, Mark just isn't aware of that moment on the cross. But let's just take it as being where um, the man is on the cross is like everyone here at nine in the morning, but as the hours pass, he will see he will see the truth of it himself. So, any any questions or things right now, given where we are, before we come to uh, the death of Jesus? Okay, so verse 33, at noon. So remember six? It's It would be like they called them watches. Like So it's first, second, third watch. It is it is 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon. Remember, they don't have wa actual like watches. They got no clocks. They don't, they're not as consumed with the tick-tock of minutes and seconds as you and I are. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's what God had enabled Amos to foresee. This, this time when God would step in and bring his work to fulfillment and it would encompass salvation, and it would encompass judgment. And the darkness. You know, I am not those who run around looking for natural explanations of all of these things. I think that misses the point. That is not what this is about. This is about not about, oh, there was an eclipse that day or something. No, this is God's hand. This is God impressing upon these people that they don't get it. They don't understand what is happening, who it is that they have put up on this Roman cross, who it is that they have spent hours and hours beating, scourging, mocking, humiliating, That this is God's only begotten Son. The Son of God in the full glory of what that phrase means in Christian theology. At darkness, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, going ahead another three hours, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means in Aramaic, maybe, no, yeah, we'll call it Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, my God, what do you mean God has forsaken Jesus? Um, a lot of writing and Theology has emerged from this because many see it as this moment when Jesus is taking the sins of the world upon himself and the whole gulf 
between humanity and God that sin is. He takes all that upon himself, and he is, in that moment, forsaken by God. Um, maybe that's the way to see it. That's not an essential piece of my theology, because I could, you know, Romans 8, 28, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But the key here is, which I'm going to show you, is to take this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and understand why Jesus says it and where it comes from. So go now to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. A Psalm of David. And of course, what Psalm follows this one? Psalm 23rd Psalm. Right? Um, the Lord is my shepherd. But that's not this Psalm. So, so let's hear a bit of this Psalm. What's the first line? You can see it yourself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we have Bibles with the Psalms all carefully numbered out and the verses all carefully numbered out and so forth, and it's all nicely printed and I can carry it in, you know, this huge library between two, two covers. But for these folks, for these Jews, they don't have that. Everything's on scrolls. And they don't have chapter headings and verse divisions and all that sort of stuff. So, if you wanted to enable somebody to, to go to where you are, you would quote it. So, when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, he is calling up for his the people around him, Psalm 22 in its fullness because this is the psalm that begins very very darkly but it doesn't end that way which is how all of our experiences in life should be because we are gods we walk through dark valleys but they don't win they're not the last story God wins we just have to have the right time frames in mind. So, my God, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. And then he, then, like, I don't think this is all of us. Then he says, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, isn't that what's happening to Jesus right here that day, noon, before? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. 
That is basically some of the mocking hurled at Jesus. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you, Lord, brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, a little scrap of uh, broken pot, broken pottery, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And, and so, it's just this, of course, Jesus is experiencing such darkness. If you say to yourself, well, I mean, come on. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be resurrected in a few days. To me, that's just cheating. You are robbing Jesus of his humanity. You are robbing Jesus of the gift of this sacrifice, this gift of his faithfulness, all the way to death, even death on a cross, as Paul puts on it. We shouldn't do that. Verse 27, we'll just read from there to the end. Because like so many portions, like the prophets, like so many of the Psalms, if they begin in darkness, they end coming upward. Because you see, God wins. God is always there. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. That is the promise made to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus that all the families of the earth would be blessed that this, that Jesus' faithfulness is for the sake of the whole world. What he is suffering is for the sake of the whole world. For dominion belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Why can't they keep themselves alive? Because they won't turn to God. They rest comfortably in their 401ks, big houses, and fast cars, and gold bars. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Are there more fitting words? You know, I, I'm, I'm preaching this Sunday. You might hear this again from me, this, this last little bit here. He has done it. God set out to rescue to rescue a people who would not simply love God and love others. So God does for them, Jesus does for them, 
what only God could do. He becomes, in essence, Israel. He takes the sins of Israel and hence the whole world upon himself. He becomes that one faithful Jew who will be faithful all the way to the cross. He's not going to abandon his vocation. He's going to love God, love others, all the way to the end. All the way to the end. It's it's so powerful. It's so it's so unique among the world religions because who would ever contemplate something like this? Right? This I mean for world religions generally it's all about God being great, 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 huge, transcendent, all that all that kind of stuff, you know. But here God has stepped into humanity into humanity and is being crucified. Facing the powers the of darkness as the the the, the, um, the spiritual forces of wickedness and confronting them and not shirking away, not running away, pushing through, staying with it, each piece. You just you want to avert your eyes, but you, well, we can't avert our eyes. We want to, but we can't. We just can't. I have some volumes back here on my shelf. The God Who Suffers. Oh, that seems crazy. I'm teaching world religions now. What sort of God is that who suffers? Are you kidding me? You know, um, when Paul would go out around the Roman Empire, the eastern end of it, around the Mediterranean, he would tell them about Jesus and tell them this story about God. Almost all of them would walk away saying what? Oh my, how silly a God to get himself crucified. They had no conception that a God would end up on a Roman cross. That isn't what gods do. It isn't what happens to them. What's the point of being a god if you're going to end up on a Roman cross? Hmm. But it's on that cross that we see the deepest, truest picture of who God is and God's love. So in building your theology or wherever you think about it, yeah, you have to begin with a simple three-word sentence from 1 John, God is love. That's it. Nothing else could possibly explain the cross. And we don't even, I don't even feel like we can explain the cross. But it's, that's what you see on display. And as I mentioned in my classes before, it's why large portions of the New Testament don't even have the word love in them. Because the focal image is not the word love. The focal image is the cross. And the reason that works is because if you want to know what love is, look at the cross. That's what love is. That's what love is. Look at the sacrifice Jesus was willing to make. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not in birth, but in death. In death.
as Paul writes, we're bought with a price, an incalculable price, right? So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Well, is it because maybe there's a little bit of audit, you know, the similarity between Eloi, Eloi, and Elijah? Maybe there was, maybe people aren't sure, scholars aren't sure about this, a legend that Elijah would come back to help out time and again. Um, but of course, there's another piece of irony here because for the Jews in their tradition, Elijah was going to come back to usher in the Messiah. So, who, who was that Elijah ushering in the arrival of God's Messiah? Wasn't that John the Baptist? You got it. That's John the Baptist. And what fate did John meet? Off with his head. Off with his head. And now the Messiah himself is running smack dab into the dark forces of this world and he is going to die. A terrible, much a much worse death than met John the Baptist. If you ever had the choice, you would choose to have your head cut off, not, not be crucified. Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Wine vinegar might be some help to Jesus, but it's, it's, all, it's all too late. And besides, um, even the wine vinegar um, offered Jesus, if you did something to extend the crucifixion, somebody brought him, I don't know, what? Big glass of water and a sandwich? If somebody, if you extend the crucifixion, you're only extending the suffering. Because crucifixion ended in death when the person who was being crucified became too weak to push themselves down, lift up their diaphragm in order to breathe. They would just slowly become weaker and weaker. No longer full breaths, three-quarter breaths half-breaths, quarter-breaths, until finally they can't take in a breath and they suffocate. That's how, it, that's how it was. That's how people died in crucifixion. Sure, some might have died for blood loss, but see, the, the, the soldiers who were to do the flogging and scourging were to be careful not to, not to get the person too close to the edge because if the person on the cross died too soon, it's not enough of a warning as opposed to the person being up there for one, two, or three days. I'll leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. That is more mocking. The mocking won't end. And so, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, literally. And in that moment, he cannot get another breath. He is too weak and in too much pain to lift himself up on his wrists and on his feet 
with the nails and the rest of it to 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 take a breath. He breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now in the temple, now the temple is facing away from Jesus. Okay, I don't I don't think I actually Okay. So there's Golgotha. Oh, you can't see the temple in this. But the back of the temple faces the camera. That's the Antonio Fortress there. But if it was a different perspective, let's see, we go if I go back, go back again here. Okay, so you can see you can see the temple. Um, the front of the temple faces east. The front of the temple faces the Garden of Gethsemane. The back of the table temple faces Golgotha. Inside the temple, there were two very tall curtains. When I talk tall, I'm talking like 25 or 30 feet in height. The temple was quite, was a, was, was a tall structure. And there's an outer curtain and there's an inner curtain. The inner curtain is what separates the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple. And so there's long been, you know, some measure of debate about which curtain it is. I, I, For me, I think it's very clear what's going on here. I think it is the inner curtain. It is the curtain that the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur to speak God's name and offer up atonement for the sins of Israel. And the rest of the world's excluded from that. Only the high priest would have that kind of relationship with God where he could go go into the holiest of holies and say the prayers and utter God's name and now that curtain is torn in two supernaturally. This is what God has done to signify what is happening and to signify that you don't need the priests anymore. That the gulf between God and humanity has been bridged. By whom? By Jesus. By Jesus, you see. That's why when we talk about putting your faith in Jesus or maybe believing in Jesus, all we're talking about is letting yourself be availed of what Jesus accomplished. It's not about what you accomplished or I accomplished. It's what Jesus accomplished. And so when you throw yourself on Jesus' faithfulness, <coughs> right, then, then that reconciliation is yours, like the prodigal son, father sweeping the wasted son up into his arms when he comes home. What a powerful image, powerful image. And why is it happening this day? Because Jesus was faithful all the way to the end. And as our, well, uh, N.T. Wright uses the phrase representative Messiah taking the sins of Israel upon himself. We just have to let it be ours. 
and not turn away. So what kind of image could I have here? So how about this image? Okay, so we have the tall curtain and the curtain is now torn in two and the hand of God is pulling the curtain open and God's other hand is motioning you to come on, come on, step in. That's it. Or we could make it even <laughs> maybe more pleasing to some. A hand pulls the curtain open. The other hand of God is going to pick you up and carry you in. So you don't even have to walk as if that is really you know doing anything for this. But you don't even have to walk then. But what if you want to shake your fist at God and walk out the front door of the temple because you know better. You know better. You don't know all you don't know all that, you know. You don't need all that weak foolish stuff. You're free to do it. You're free to do it. You can walk away from God to your own end. That is So the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Any questions about that? Because that this is something I get asked about a number of times. Scott, are there other places in the Bible, even Old Testament? I'm I'm kind of thinking that there is, with reference again to curtains being torn. I'm not aware of one off the okay. top of my head. Um, you know, one of my favorite images, this comes from the tabernacle in the last chapter of Exodus. When the tabernacle is now built, this movable tent dwelling place for God, and the presence of God is settling upon the tabernacle. And it so fills up this tabernacle that Moses can't even get in the front door. That's one of my favorites. But I think this is different because the truth is from the time of the rebellion against God in the garden until Jesus' death, humanity has not been reconciled with God. Even the Yom Kippur and the atonement, that's just like a little crutch, a splint, a make-do. It's not... It's not genuine reconciliation. It is now that God's project is coming to its completion, its fulfillment. Already, 2,000 years ago, and not yet, which we could talk about, but well, we won't today. So, Moses, take Moses for example. Can Moses see the face of God and live? No, because... God is holy and Moses is not. Moses has not been reconciled to God in that way. But the tearing of the curtain, I think, signifies that this is, this is a moment beyond all moments. In verse 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now this centurion would be a non-commissioned officer in charge of a hundred men. Probably a pretty rough, tough kind of guy coming up through the ranks. 
part of the execution squad. They knew how to do this. They knew how to do this very well. Um, I'm sure he had done it before. But he's, he's taken to a different place by what he has seen and what he has heard in Jesus. And so he utters this words, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, two levels. Two levels. What does he mean by that? Well, I can't peer inside his head. But is it filled with images of Christian theology and a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the only begotten Son of the Lord? Give? No. He's a pagan. Gods and goddesses populate a pagan uh, pantheon, right? Just all kinds of them. The Son of God. Son of God was a title that Caesar was taking upon himself. I imagine truthfully that he uses these words because he is experiencing something very, very profound and these are the only words that he has to talk about. And the irony is, he gets it exactly right. This is the Son of God in the full Trinitarian, Athanasian, Chalcedonian sense. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of it. Yes. 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 <laughs> I just had a thought. You know, being... I spent a great deal of my life as a parent of children. Um, basically raised three sons. And children are funny because they, they can speak great truth, but they don't realize it. You know, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. Kids say the darndest things. I mean, those weren't always out, like outrageous things the kids said. Sometimes they were just like, uh, you know, it's sort of like the emperor new, emperor's new clothes. Remember that story? It's a kid who looks at the emperor and speaks the truth. Yep. Right? So here this, this pagan centurion representing Caesar. Don't miss that piece of this. He's representing Caesar. Saw how Jesus died. And the words that come out of him, I don't even know if he's thought about what these, the words are. Surely this man was the Son of God. And ironically, he gets it. And ironically, further, he's the first person in the gospel to say it about Jesus. Ah. So, Art Linkletter. Thank you, Nancy. Art Linkletter. Thank you, Mona. See? <laughs> Just in our little group here, we can crowdsource almost anything. Well, we have our own funny little story. One time, Scott and I were taking our grandsons when they were really small out to yoke to get yogurt. <laughs> and there was um, a little boy who was a few years older than his sister. She might have been about three. He was probably about six. And when she went to sit down, he moved the chair out of the way. So she fell right on her little backside. Mm -hmm. She didn't get hurt, but... You know, she she made the the no, all the noises, and our grandson, who was about four, went hysterical laughing. So we are trying to be really good grandparents, and Scott says, "William, that is not very nice. That is not funny." And Will sat there for about a minute, and then he just looked at his grandfather, who he calls Baba, and said, "No, Baba, it is funny," <laughs> and then just went. 
hysterical. And of course, it was funny, actually. It was funny. Yeah, but yeah, they'll tell you the truth sometimes, even if it's hard to hear. In this case, the centurion, it's, it's, this is, for me, this is like, this is like the sign, king of the Jews, the purple robe, the crown, the rest of them. The people there don't understand what they are doing. And it's, you know, it's a sad thing. But now we're going to come, so anything else on, on, on that? Mona said she one time met Art Linkletter. Really? Wow. Well, I used to like that show. When I was a long, long time ago, I was probably a kid myself, but I, I thought it was pretty good. Well, kids do say the darndest they things. They do. They do. So now we're going to come to a paragraph that indeed involves some people who might well understand more than any around them what is happening. And these are the women. And in the way the Gospels are written, if not for this paragraph, we would not understand how deeply embedded women were in Jesus' mission, in his vocation, in his ministry. Now, there are various names of women given at the cross, depending upon the Gospels and so forth, of course. Um, nobody's going to pretend to give a complete list and anything like that doesn't matter these are these are the women and it can get confusing because again they don't have many names to work with there are a lot of marys in the new testament because there are so many marys in judea and galilee because they didn't need a lot of names nobody ever went very far it wasn't very hard to, to keep people straight as to who was who you know, now we have first name, last name, middle initial, social security number, address, all that stuff people want to hear. Every time I go down to UT Southwestern's name and date of birth. To about six people. Yeah, <laughs> as they're trying to make sure that they're, you know, treating the right person. So here it's 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 these Marys. And it puts, in a, puts us in a situation where we can't be sure of exactly who we're talking about. But it doesn't matter doesn't you'll see so verse 40 some women were watching from a distance among them were mary magdalene she's she's the most prominent of the women at least the one we 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 know the most about in part because of of what john tells us about her story with jesus but she is from a, a place that was called Magdala in Jesus' time on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and it's called Migdal today. Um, and there's a beautiful, they began uncovering a first century synagogue there in the last uh, 15 or 18 years and the Catholics built a beautiful, beautiful church on that spot that's just 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 so lovely and so well done. The Roman Catholic Church does often does a very very excellent job at capturing beauty and um, exaltation in their in their architecture. 
So among these women were Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, or Joseph, depending, but just two forms of the same name. This is probably not probably not Mary, Jesus' mother, because that would be a hard, an interesting way to describe her. This is probably not Mary, the mother of the son Zebedee's wife, or this would be a funny way to describe her. This is Mary, the mother of the other James. There's just a lot of Jameses even. Jesus has got a half-brother named James, who is not a follower of Jesus at this point. But Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome, another woman who I don't think is mentioned elsewhere. And they are some of the women gathered there at the cross. And who is not there? The disciples. The disciples. Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Andrew. They're not there. Why aren't they there? You need to get this inside your heart. They are not there because they are terrified. Nobody thinks that Jesus... Nobody really thinks that Jesus is the Messiah at this point. They couldn't. You can't expect that of them. They love him. He's a wise teacher. They're, they're devoted to him. But messiahs don't meet this end. And the men know that the Roman practice is to round up the followers of any would-be messiah. And there had been others before Jesus and others after Jesus. You know, most of them lost to history. A few we know about. Judas the Galilean in 6 AD is one you encounter, well, you hear about in the New Testament. <coughs> But no, it's, it's, I just think it's really helpful in trying to get to a deeper and richer understanding of the gospel and transformational understanding of the gospel if you will let these people be as they were. They, they, how could they, how could they see? Nobody sees, nobody gets it. A God who suffers? A Messiah is crucified and now dead? Are the Romans still in charge? Yeah. Are the priests still in charge? Yeah. But the women are gathered. They're devoted to him. And they're, they, they play the key parts in what lies ahead over the weekend. Because it's Friday, late afternoon. Verse 41. In Galilee, these women and the others they represent had followed him and cared for his needs. In another gospel whose name escapes me, um, we're told that, that um, they helped to provide some money for this. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So it's a whole contingent of women who are now gathered around the cross. Now, they're not worried about the Romans. Why are they not worried about the Romans? Because they're not, because they're women. And, 
You know, the Romans aren't worried about women. They're worried, they would, Romans would be worried about men leading a rebellion. And so the women are free to be there, and they are there. And Peter and the rest are in hiding somewhere. Not even there. I, I often reflect on... I, I, I mean, I know that Jesus must have understood intellectually why Peter wasn't there. He understood that Peter would deny him three times, but it still must have been so very hurtful that these men, especially Peter, who had been with him so long, they couldn't even stay awake while he prayed in Gethsemane. Peter denies him three times. They're away in hiding right now. It would only add to his feeling of forsakenness and abandonment on the cross. And I hope, I really, you know, I hope that he was comforted by looking out that morning and seeing the presence of these, of these women. You know, it's something like this is one of the building blocks of a biblical theology for the full incorporation of women into ministry. And I, I, I just don't get, I just don't get how any denomination or church can say to women, well, okay, here's the things you can do. But here's this much more important set of things that you can't do that are only left to men. And including the Catholics. You know, and we have a lot of churches like that in our area. And I think they are they are dead on wrong. Dead on? Hmm. They are they are quite wrong about that. And we could not here, but we you know, I've stepped through that on Sunday morning sometimes. But here it is. Jesus is crucified. And it's the women who are with him in this. And it will be the women, largely, who care for him. It will be the women who discover the empty tomb. It will be the women who the first who will be the first bearers of the good news. I, anyway, enough said. So we need to stop here. We will come back here next week. I know all of this is going slowly, but it needs to go slowly. Because we have I'm sorry. <laughs> we have the burial of Jesus coming up, and then we have the empty tomb story. And then I'm thinking we will probably almost certainly finish up Mark next week. So then in two weeks we will start Esther unless somebody has an I a different idea that I really like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am the teacher, right, honey? Yes. I have to prepare Oops. these things, so well, there I know, am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yes. Okay. I think when you said um I'm sorry, I think she thought you said her name, and I'm not going to say it. because Don't she say it. You answer. can't say her name. Her name goes unspoken. <laughs> oh, well. The fascinating thing is I don't even have her turned on, I think, I hope. But she, I guess I must. Somehow. After, you have to. I need Lauren to come over and <laughs> fix this for me. Mine never does that, you know, so I think you accidentally I think I will. somehow. Thank you all for being here with us today. Hope you have a great week. Um, 
I will not be here next Monday because I'll be flying uh, with my sister back to Pensacola to help her out with some things that she's got um, that needs to be taken care of. And uh, I'll miss you guys. Did you tell them what happened last Wednesday? Because you bolted out of here Uh, Monday. Well, I'm not going to go into a lot. No detail. Just no detail. But my my sister's husband (coughs) um, had to be put in in memory care. And um, it's last Wednesday. He went into memory care last Wednesday. It's not going well. And uh, my sister is coming here, though, for her diabetes because with all the stress and everything, it's out of control. So I'm going to have her And you're such a here. good sister, going to help her with all her She'll stuff. She'll be here with us for a, a week, and then I'll be flying back home with her for a few days. Make sure she yep. gets home okay. Yep. Let's close out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day. We thank you, God, for this opportunity once again to study your word and hear very possibly in all of the four gospels when we come to the time of jesus's death and resurrection it always just speaks to me as the most important part of the bible i i know that it's all important but this is this is just absolutely the cornerstone of our faith of the love that jesus christ had for all of us that he gave his life that he gave his life and that he suffered all the way to the cross and So, God, please, we don't want to hurry through it. We want to be sure that we are actually absorbing as much of this incredible story, God, as we can. Because we know if we study this for the rest of our lives, we would, we would, it would still, it would just still not be enough. So, Lord, hold this group together close. Bring everybody back together on uh, next Monday and uh, keep us healthy and safe, Lord. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, everybody.